Psalm 73 in your Bible, the 73rd Psalm. We won't read it all aloud this morning, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to go through most of the verses during this sermon. We're in a series entitled An Invitation. Jesus frequently presented the gospel of grace as an invitation. He presented it in invitation form. He invites people to be saved to live life on a higher plane, and to enjoy the blessings of salvation in the here and now. And today, he invites us to live with an eternal perspective. It's important to have that foundation, that perspective embedded in your heart in order to honor Jesus and to weather the storms of life. I want to give you some examples. A child asks, Mommy, why did Daddy leave? Is he mad at me? An adult wonders, God, why was I treated so badly as a child? A believer wonders, why did my spouse die so early? An elderly person thinks, why am I so lonely? We all wonder, why are so many people in high places so depraved and demonic? Why today, across the globe, is sexual perversion not only affirmed but celebrated? Why are the world dictators who are allowed to torture and murder millions? In fact, why is it that you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, you reap later than you sow, but so Many wicked people seem to be immune from these laws of sowing and reaping. There are so many injustices in this world. And on a daily basis, it almost seems like good is rewarded, and, or excuse me, evil is rewarded and good is punished. And we can certainly say that we live in a day when evil is called good and good is called evil. Now we all see this. We can't miss it. And it can begin to compile in our heart. And when enough of that builds and enough pressure builds, we think if God is so good, why is evil rewarded while believers often suffer? If God is so good, why does evil get rewarded while I suffer? That's where the author of this psalm was at. His name was Asaph. Asaph was a Levite. David put him in charge of the worship music that was performed at the tent of meeting before Solomon's temple was completed. He was musically trained. The Bible says he was skilled in music. Ten times in the Bible it says he played the cymbals. He was also the author of 12 of the Psalms. And psalms were recited or sung during Jewish worship. So here is a man who is spiritually appraised, yet after seeing all the evil surrounding him, he began to live with an earthly perspective. Look at verse 2. He said, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He came razor close to falling away from the faith. And we can fall into the same trap. Now, one of the reasons we can fall into the trap is that in Bible-preaching churches, and I've said this before, but I think it's true, there still exists some of what I call the latent prosperity gospel. 
It's latent, meaning it's not dominant, but it kind of still hangs around. And then from time to time, it surfaces. And here's what it says. If you are in the center of God's will, life will go well. You should expect prosperity and success. I mean, you have trouble, but nothing too severe. And if you lack these things, it's because you don't have enough faith or there's sin in your life, or you're not claiming God's promises, or you're not in God's will. Now, that's garbage, folks. Don't misunderstand. Those things can cause problems. Sin has consequences that can last a lifetime. But Jesus said, in this world, the believer will have tribulation. Paul said, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But if we forget all that, and we begin to compile all these things in our heart, we, number one, begin to live with an earthly perspective. Now, if that's where you are this morning, you're not alone. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and he said, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, and also become very powerful? Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Ecclesiastes 7, he said, There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And you might say, well, Job was a farmer and Solomon a king. This is a spiritual matter, so we need to talk to a preacher. Well, Jeremiah said, Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? So if you live with this earthly perspective, first, you're going to become exasperated as you look at the world. You will become exasperated. If you look at physical realities and draw spiritual conclusions, those conclusions will often be wrong. In fact, look at verse 3. Asaph said, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Not all wicked people are prosperous. But we often see the wealthy using their wealth to mistreat people and wield their power in wicked ways. So he saw this. He also saw the passing of the wicked in verse 4. He said, there are no pains in their death. I was friends years ago with a man who was very profane. He, we had a great relationship, but he always resisted the gospel, liked to make fun of me. He lived rough, drank a lot, was an open and consistent adulterer with the full knowledge of his wife. He had money, health, lived to a ripe old age. One morning he took his wife downtown, dropped her off, went back home, sat down in his recliner, and died. No hospital, no nursing home, no crutches, no wheelchair, no IVs, no pain. He just slipped away. I preached his funeral. In verse 5, Asaph saw the peace of the wicked. He said, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. It seems that often the wicked have no problems. They can commit almost any kind of evil with no repercussions. Now, even though the wicked may be appear to have a great time, inwardly they experience an unease and an unrest. So they try to dull the void in their heart. Carnal pleasures, self-indulgence, drugs, affairs. You often hear of wealthy people ending up in divorce or drug rehab. Nancy Piercy is a brilliant Christian writer worth a follow on Twitter. You can read any of her books or articles. Good stuff. In her book, Total Truth, she said, and I'm quoting, 
Ever since Freud called Christianity a neurosis, the dogma in social science is that Christianity is harmful, but science has reversed Freud, and she has the, the stats to back this up. She said, statistically, Christians have lower rates of depression, suicide, divorce, drug and alcohol abuse, and other social pathologies. Nevertheless, Asaph saw the pride of the wicked, verse 6. The wicked carry their pride around like a badge, and that's because of verse 8, the power of the wicked. Look at verse 8, he said, They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, and he said they speak from on high. And every week, every week, I hear from you great frustration about the naked wickedness being forced on America today. So I don't need to further illustrate any of these points. You've all had things that have come to mind. You can become exasperated as you look at the world, which means if you have an earthly perspective, you can become frustrated in your walk with God. You can become frustrated in your walk with God. Look at verse 11. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Asaph is saying the wicked even doubt that there is an omniscient God in heaven. I saw on X, formerly known as Twitter on Friday, that MSNBC says if you believe human rights come from God and not government, you are a Christian nationalist. That means you want to take over the country and impose your values on other people because you believe inalienable rights come from God and not the government. You know, my wife can attest to this. I spend half my day looking for my car keys. Taking over the government hasn't made it to my list yet. <laughs> it, might, it might make it, but then I'll be looking for my wallet. <laughs> so... For those of you who are just like me, I bought this wallet. It's kind of expensive. It's got a little solar uh, charges there. And uh, if you forget it somewhere and you have your phone, it'll scream at you. And uh, this spring, I take off down 2440 and my phone screams at me and I left it on top of a gas pump of Fast Tracks. <laughs> but I'm getting ready to take over the country because I believe inalienable rights come from God. If we stay focused on all this wickedness, verse 13 becomes our refrain. Look at it. Asaph said, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. In other words, I've tried to live a holy life, and it seems all I get are problems, but the wicked just get to laugh their way through life. Is it really worth it to live a holy life? Now, is it possible that that's you this morning? Tied up in knots over all the evil in this world? Extremely frustrated about maybe evil in your school, your workplace, this world? Wrestling with this kind of an issue is not surprising. If you think much about your faith, you'll come across this at some point. So wrestling, excuse me, wrestling with this is not sinful and working through this issue is not sinful. It deeply grieves me to see wickedness run amok. And there are issues that do not have a simple answer or that will satisfy our finite minds. 
But there are so many things for us not to know because we are not God. Proverbs 29.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So it's not a sin to wrestle with an issue, but by no means should you stay in the same place either. But if we're stuck in this kind of a thought pattern, it just continues to boil over in our heart, how do we change it? Well, Asaph did something that changed everything. And he went from living with an earthly perspective to living with an eternal perspective. This entire psalm and maybe your spiritual well-being turns on verse 16. Take a look at it. He said, it was troublesome in my sight until verse 17. I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. His heart, his mind, his soul, his whole outlook changed when he entered the sanctuary of God. And so since this is the turning point, what exactly did he mean by the sanctuary of God. Now I looked at seven different commentaries. Matthew Henry the Puritan is always helpful. He said, and I'm quoting, he attended to his devotions, meditated upon the attributes of God. He consulted the scriptures and he prayed to God to make this matter plain to him and help him over this difficulty. But of everything I read, James Montgomery Boyce summarized it best. He said, Asaph came to see everything through God's perspective rather than from his limited and sinful worldview. So let's apply this. How can you and I come into the sanctuary of God? I want to give you several, excuse me, seven simple statements, four by way of question. Now, none of these are by way of condemnation. And they're not intended to nag you. These are by way of changing you. Let me rephrase that. These are by way of changing so that you see life from an eternal perspective, that you grow spiritually and you ground yourself in this wicked world and you keep that eternal perspective. Here's the first one. Is there a daily intake of God's word? Now, you say, man, you've said that before. I'll, I'll stop saying it when you do it. <laughs> There's an old and true maxim, and it goes like this. Garbage in, garbage out. The battleground for the health of your soul and to have an eternal perspective is found in your mind. What kind of food are you putting in your mind? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So for spiritual strength, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, to keep that eternal perspective, feed daily on his word. Number two, is there daily prayer? Prayer invites God into your life. The absence of prayer, can we just go bottom line here? The absence of prayer means you've got it figured out. Good for you. You don't need God. And that's nothing more than human pride, and God hates pride, but he gives grace to the humble. Every time you pray in a very real way, you're humbling yourself, you're bowing before Almighty God, and you're inviting him to move in your life. Number three, 
is there weekly church and Bible fellowship attendance? You are discipled and you disciple others when you study scripture together in a class. Now, you can do this with a few friends, but God's design is the local church, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. You hear teaching in a sermon. You experience fellowship in a class. Or the word today tends to be more community than fellowship. Either one works. In community, in fellowship, that's where you learn to think through biblical issues with one another and apply them to your life. We do this in here on Wednesday nights as well. The people teach me as much as I teach them. And if you are parents of young kids, I really want you to take time to do something today. Read my bulletin article so you can see what Jennifer Belcher is doing to help you disciple your kids when they go to Sunday school. So this needs to be a weekly family event. Number four, are you too immersed in news and talk shows, especially the mainstream media? Are you too immersed in news and talk shows, especially the mainstream media? Now, some of this is paradoxical. Some of you may need to be more informed. Do not be naive about all the evil that is coming from our government, from places business, in, in the business world, some in the educational world, and unfortunately in many, many, many churches. Things that were laughed off by me as conspiracy theories in the past few years, some of them have been proven true. But the other side of this is that no matter what it is, a news talk show, they have an agenda. They're trying to create an audience for financial reasons, and they're going to tell you what you want to hear. Too much content can create a hardened cynicism that dulls your walk with Jesus and keeps your perspective focused on the, etern or on the earthly. Number five, make Sunday a day of worship, rest, and a focus on God. We need to rest one day in seven. That's the pattern in Scripture. Our souls need that. What if you made worship on Sunday as high of a priority as work on a Monday? So, man, i got to get out of here and do some work. You'll get more done in six days than you could ever done, get done in seven if you honor God. In fact, what kind of life would Christ form in you if not just you come to a class and worship on Sunday morning, but you go home on Sunday afternoon and you read your Bible and you pray, and you give your body rest and your mind rest. What kind of life would Christ form in you? Number six, I told you you're not going to like these. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Simplify your life. Simplify it. God did not design you as a spiritual being to experience everything and be everywhere in the material world. You are a spiritual being. Leverage your life for what matters most. Don't live as a relentless consumer. Cut some things out of your life. Slow down and make it simple. Leave some margin for God. And number seven is live generously. Financially, tithing is a good rule of thumb. Leverage your finances and leverage your life for the sake of the kingdom, your life does not consist of your possessions. 
Now, we could elaborate on all, all those things, but you've got those seven down, and if you'll practice those, they'll change your perspective. Otherwise, without some of these, let's just be honest, you're living like an atheist. Atheists don't pray. Atheists don't read their Bible. Atheists don't worship on Sundays or any other day. Asaph entered this sanctuary of God's truth, and when he saw life from an eternal perspective, he changed 180 degrees, and the very first thing he noticed was the fate of the wicked. The fate of the wicked. Look at verse 17. He said, then I perceived their end. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. No Christian wishes hell on anyone, but the Bible frequently talks about it. A preacher who never talks about it should immediately resign. Damnation is the world's default position. Every person needs to be saved. The Bible uses the word saved quite often, so what does being saved mean? Now, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. I'm just going to tell you about one aspect being saved means you're saved from something. I mean, you're rescued. You're saved from hell. You're saved from God's wrath. You're saved from paying the price for your sins. Now, sometimes people will say, well, God never sends anyone to hell. Man sends himself there. You know, that's semantics. All people who do not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. The Bible is unflinching about this. And it says hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It says it's a bottomless pit, so you're always following. A place of blackness, so you cannot see. A place of fire, so you're in torment. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 21 verse 8 says it's a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, People work overtime today to explain this away. I did a little bit of reading on this. One writer said that the suffering in hell is only spiritual in nature because Satan and his angels are only spiritual beings. I don't follow the logic there. Another explanation was that the lake of fire was just a Jewish expression for the second death. Well, that doesn't change anything. And the big challenge today is a doctrine called annihilationism, and it has a cousin called conditional immortality. And basically that means that both body and soul are destroyed in the fire of hell. A person suffers for an inordinate amount of time for their evil, and the words eternal torment don't mean eternal torment, they just mean the ex end of existence. Well, okay. Maybe there's some truth in that. Sounds good. But if there is, why would God let something that significant be something that's never stated in his word. There's no verses to back it up. Why in Luke 16 was the rich man in hell in torment, in agony, and saw that there was a great chasm fixed so he could never get to heaven? And they say, oh, well, that's just a parable. Why has there been a very broad consensus of 2,000 years of biblical study that finds annihilationism to be unbiblical? The brilliant Norman Geisler said the doctrine of annihilationism rests more on sentiment than scriptural basis. 
The reason we backpedal on hell is because it's culturally unacceptable today to believe it. But throughout this book, the Holy Spirit repeatedly says that men and women need to be saved. We're told to be sure about our salvation, to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, not possessing a prideful self-assertion that believes, I don't have to practice anything the Bible says, but I'm too good to be damned. No subject is more important. So I hope you don't think I'm ranting. I'm pleading. With an eternal perspective, Asaph sees this, and he shook up that he didn't previously see it clearly. Verse 21. He said, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He's saying, I was so foolish when I envied the wicked. Verse 19 how they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. The famous R.G. Lee preached a sermon that you may have heard of the title before. It's called Payday Someday. And it speaks of a woman named Tony who murdered her boyfriend in a drunken rage. And when they put her in the electric chair, her last words were, somehow I knew all along that God was running the show. I just thought I could steal one act. God is saying, when you look at the wicked, don't look at what they have. Look at where they're headed. Now, I will not deny for a moment that everything we have to deal in this life is important. I I mean, I have the same frustrations you have. I took my taxes to the mailbox Thursday night, and I got my trash to the curb Thursday night, and I wasn't sure what to put where for a while. (laughs) I'm joking. Sort of. There are days and even years when it seems like the problems of life never stop. But I am telling you that in the eternal realm, what happens in this life does not compare to the glory that awaits a believer. The Bible calls, tells us there's a city called the New Jerusalem. It tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It tells us every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship before the throne of God. These things have not happened, but they will change in an instant. And with an eternal perspective, Asaph sees the fate of the world. He also sees the faithfulness of God. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Notice the twofold realization here. He says, I am continually with you, God. Well, if you're a believer, you're always seeking his presence. You always want his life formed in you. But the second part of that verse is more important. He said, you have taken hold of my right hand. I've had people say to me in the ministry, Pastor, pray for me that I'll hang on and be faithful until the end. I can't pray that for you. And here's why. You don't have it in you, but Jesus has it in him. Remember that the gospel is not about what you can do for Jesus. It's about what he's already done for you. He'll never leave you. Disease can't separate you from him. Difficulty can't do it. Disaster can't do it. Divorce can't do it. The devil can't do it. And neither can death. 
So in verse 24, Asaph said, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He'll guide you through life. You'll be with him at the end and you'll experience heaven. For so many people in this world, this world is their portion. This is all they have. I used to live that life, and it boggles my mind. I mean, is that the purpose of life, just to eke out some pleasure here and there between the pain and the problems, and then one day you die and it's over? Is that what we instinctively know? No. An eternal perspective renounces this world for a great reward of glory. And the truth is, when you get an eternal perspective, you won't care all that much about the things of this world. Verse 25, he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And look at verse 26. He said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We have no portion here. Our inheritance is there. And our flesh will fail. And our heart, our inner person will buckle at some point in this life. But what can compare to being in his presence forever? If you're a believer, you will have your unsatisfied longings fulfilled in a way far beyond what you can expect. Your fears will be allayed. Your tears will be dried. Your body will be healed. Most of all, your heart will be at peace and you will have unbroken fellowship with the holy of holies christianity means that christ has come died was buried and rose again to forgive us our sins and give us a new life in him and every person needs that eternal security so if you're not a christian how do you become a christian first of all you have to recognize that you're a condemned sinner you know that Jesus is drawing you to yourself. When you stop comparing your sin to others and saying, well, I'm not that bad. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, your only conclusion is, oh God, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Number two, believe that Jesus died and rose again. Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which means he's now your master. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Not just the head, the heart, your whole being. And then number three, fully trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Not anything you can do. No shred of self-righteousness. Not your so-called good life. It's about what he did on the cross that you and I could not possibly do. Some of you may be here this morning, you came to, to hear your kid, and I'm so glad that you're here. But there might be a confusion about Christianity. What's the difference between people who are saved, who are Christians, and people who are not? And here's how it goes. People who are saved are, let me, I'm going to rephrase this. People who are not saved are sinners. People who are saved are sinners who are forgiven. That's the difference. So this morning I want to present to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I invite you to believe on him today. If you've never believed, there's nothing complicated about it. You genuinely believe on him. If you do that, if you make that decision today, or if you have questions, 
scan that QR code in front of you. You complete that, we'll get back to you sometime tomorrow. We would love the opportunity to meet with you, to talk to you about either becoming a Christian or what it means to be a Christian.